The following is recorded from Marine Creek Church. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. We hope you enjoy this message. It's one way to start it off, huh? All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. And uh, as you saw, Pastor Matt's out this week on a mission to Honduras. And my hope is that during this message, I'm not jacking with this mic the entire time. Because last service, I was playing with it constantly, driving me nuts. But be in prayer for Matt that he return home safely for us. But not just that he return home safely, but that he fulfills the mission for which God has sent him to Honduras for. And like he said on the video, today we're going to be talking about the missional mindset. We're going to investigate through Acts chapter 13 what it takes to have the missional mindset. And uh, just as Matt's returning home soon... Um, my family and I, we just recently returned as well. We didn't go on a mission trip, but we went on a vacation to Puerto Rico that kind of seemed like a mission trip at times. But um, we got there, and the second day in, my daughter, um, she's looking really lethargic and really pale, and I go to give her a hug. You could just tell she has a really elevated fever. And um, the bad thing about it is, after we get back to the hotel, you know, she's eight years old, medicine, she's ever known as liquid form or uh, spray form or chewable form or something like that. She's never swallowed a pill in her life, so she's very freaked out with the entire idea of even trying that. So after a while, we finally get the first ibuprofen in her so that the fever can start going down. And by the grace of God, right before we were there, um, my wife went to the doctor and she ended up which was excellent because my daughter needed antibiotics while we were there. But just in case you didn't know, they put that waxy coating on the outside of the pill for a reason because that is the most disgusting taste on the planet. And unfortunately, we had to cut it in order to give it to my daughter. So we had a full do- we had three pills. She needed a pill and a half for a full dosage. So I'm thinking, all right, we got some trial and error. She can spit this out a few times and we're still good. So put it in her mouth, hits her tongue, blah. Spits it out into the toilet. We're like, all right, all right, this isn't going well. Long story short, two hours later, all the fruit of the Spirit, otherwise known as patience, is like Elvis, man. It left the building. And uh, and don't judge me, parents. But uh, as I'm sitting there, the whole time she's been going, I can't do it, I can't do it. Finally, I'm like, say you can do it. She goes, I can't do it. I said, say you can do it. I can do it. I said, no, nod your head and say, you can do it. I can do it. Puts it in her mouth, spits it out. So we decide to mash it up, put it in some mashed potatoes. She gets about three quarters of a serving down, vomits it all over my wife, all over the hotel room floor, which made the smell in the hotel room fantastic for the next few days. But by the grace of God through answered prayer, the next morning she wakes up. I don't know what shifted in her mind, but she woke up saying, I can do it. I I can take the pill. Let me try again. And I'm trying to play dad saying, no, you can't. You can't do it. We're going to mash it up and you're going to have to taste it again. She's like, no, no, I can do it. So she puts it on her tongue and like a champ, like she's been doing it her entire life, swallowed the pill. And thankfully she gets a full dosage. Now she had the capacity the night before to swallow it just the same as she had that morning. Nothing had changed. The only thing that had changed was her mindset. The only thing that changed was she believed she had the ability to do it. So my hope today is we're talking about missional living, that as we investigate the missional mindset that Paul has, 
but that's going to empower us to step up and do whatever it is that God's called us to do. If you've been in Christianity that long, you know that missional living, or just the word missional, is a buzzword in the Christian community. So the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to define what missional living is. And it's one of our core values here at the Creek, like Matt said. So I went to our website and I pulled our definition of it up. And I, changed, I paraphrased it just a little bit to kind of help us out so it's not as long. But I'm going to read it for you. Missional living. We glorify God as we live out his mission. We're to reflect the image of God on the world around us. We follow Jesus so closely that we look like him, act like him, and reflect his purpose, love, and heart for the people that we meet. So, that's what we define as missional living, having our lives transformed to where we look and act like Christ, and we go out into the world to reflect that onto the world around us in whatever capacity God has called us to do that. Now, before we get into Acts chapter 13 today and and watch how this plays out in the life of Paul, you can go ahead and turn there if you want. But I want to recap for us where we've been so far through Acts, through Acts so we kind of get brought up to speed. Because we've been talking about Peter, the disciple, the apostle Peter, over the last few weeks. Now, if we dial it back a few weeks before that, we arrive at the man we know as Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul was a persecutor of the church. He was bringing the hammer down on Christianity, trying to squash it in the early days. Now, we know the story. He... He's on the road to Damascus, has a dramatic conversion where Christ appears to him. Long story short, he becomes a believer, travels down to Jerusalem, and starts boldly preaching the name of Christ. So much so that the Hellenists are seeking to kill him now. So he slips away and goes to Caesarea. From Caesarea, he travels back to his hometown of Tarsus. And that's where we leave him when we start talking about Peter. Through the life and ministry of Peter, though, we find out that Barnabas... He goes to this city called Antioch, and in Antioch, he's investigating what's going on there, and he decides to leave, go to Tarsus, grab Saul, and bring him back. So today, we're going to find Saul in Antioch, and we're going to find out the commission or the mission that God has placed upon his life. So if you would, turn to chapter 13 with me. We're going to start in on verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We're going to stop right there for a moment, and we're just going to take a look at these first four verses to see what we can pull out of it. The first thing that I want you to notice is these guys weren't specifically fasting and praying in order to receive a word about their mission. I mean, that was not the purpose of their fasting and praying, because when you look at the subtlety of the text there, it says they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Spirit gives them a commission, and then they finish their, their worship and their fasting. In other words... Right when they got that word, they didn't decide, okay, we got our word, let's stop our fasting and our praying, and let's start our journey. No, they continued the reason they had set out. And the reason that they set out for in the beginning was simply to worship and pray and to fast unto God, to be plugged into Him. And that's the first thing we want to see for the mindset of a missional believer. A missional-minded believer stays in constant fellowship with God, and their life is being transformed. 
Now, that transformation is very essential with this whole process. And the reason I say that is because of a verse we find in Romans 12. It's verse 2. It says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you'll be able to test and approve what the good, perfect, and pleasing will of God is. In other words, as we come to Christ and as our lives are transformed, as our minds are transformed, as the Spirit of God begins to speak to us, then we're able to discern the things that God has called us to do in life. So it's absolutely vital that we go through that process of transformation. And in order to get there, we have to be a people that are fellowshipping and in love with God. We don't come to God for the mission. We don't come to God for the giftings. We come to God for God. And through that process, we get our calling. Now, it's... uh, in John chapter 15, Jesus paints the picture this way, of that we have to be attached to him, that we have to abide in him for that transformation to take place. It says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So, Matt, several weeks ago, he brought up a, uh, he brought up a lamp from the prayer room. And he, he says, you know, it's a nice lamp. It's lovely. It's good to look at. But unless it's plugged into its power source, it doesn't fulfill the reason it was made. It has no light within it. Now, he, he used that as an analogy to teach us that unless we're plugged into our power source at all times, the reason for which we were created, it won't be realized. And not only that, our lights won't shine because it's absolutely essential that each one of us at all times be in constant fellowship and constant connection with God. So, Barnabas and Paul here, just to recap. They're worshiping, they're fasting, they receive their, their commission papers, if you will, and they set out for their mission. So let's jump back in at verse 4 and see what happens. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So... We're going to stop there again because we just got introduced to a lot of cities. And for me personally, whenever I read about the missionary journeys or whenever it takes me to many cities, I like to have a visual of that. So what I did this morning was I put up a map so that you kind of get an idea of the travels that these guys went through. Now, Antioch is going to be on your top right. And if you're curious where that is, that's in Syria. Now, that's going to be 300 miles due north of Jerusalem. So if you know where present-day Israel, where Jerusalem is, you're going to know where Antioch is, 300 miles due north. Now, from there, they travel over to Seleucia. And don't you love that name, Seleucia? Man, I, I feel smarter just having said it, Seleucia. kind of rolls off the tongue. I think my IQ just went up 50 points saying it. Anyway, they travel from Seleucia down to Salamis, which really sounds more like a a hillbilly Texas town, like they went to proclaim the word at the flea market or something. From Salamis, they go through the entire island of Paphos. Now, why am I mentioning all that? Why am I showing that? Well, for one, to get a visual picture so that you see these are actual places. You can kind of see the distance that these guys traveled. But second is this. A missional-minded believer must be prepared, or I'm sorry, must be ready at all time to go wherever the Spirit of God calls us to go. When we seek the Lord and we ask Him of what's next, our mission, it might be like Pastor Matt. It might take us away to Honduras. The will of God might just take you to work that day to proclaim 
whatever it is that God has for you at the office. It doesn't have to be some great trip that takes you to the far ends of the earth. It could be something as simple as as the way you are to your family when you get home that day. But it's important, like we said, with the first step to always stay in constant fellowship with God. So you saw the travels. Let's jump into verse 6 and see what happens. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, remember that was the far end of the island. They had went through the entire island. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of, the, the word of God. But Elimaz, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So we'll step back out of Scripture again and take a look at that. First of all, I want to say the, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, this isn't like saying he was going through the island and the, the greeter at Walmart wanted to hear the word of the Lord. This is a big dude. This is the highest Roman official on the entire island who was put there by the Roman Senate. So this is like saying the president of the island basically summoned him and said, I want to hear the word of the Lord. But what happened when he got there? He's instantly under oppression. He's opposed by the enemy. And to make application for us, each one of us, we'd better be aware that when we step up to do whatever mission God's called us to do, we must be prepared for and persevere through spiritual attack. It's absolutely vital that we understand that when we jump up, the enemy's going to come against us. You, you might be saying to me, well, Trent, I've never seen the, the attack of the enemy come against me. I've never experienced any time of spiritual warfare before. And let me say this to you. It's, it's kind of like, say America went to war today, and we went to war against um, Mexico. I'll pick on them, second service. Now, we know who we fight for. Now, we get to the battlefield, and there's a trench dug, and we jump in the trench. While we're in the trench, we're hearing shots go overhead. We're hearing people who have went to advance and come back, telling other stories of attack. We hear all the rumble, but we've never personally been fired upon. But that moment, we decide to jump up out of the trench and advance the hill to do what our commanding officer told us. We have to understand that at that point, a big bullseye has been painted on us, and the enemy is coming against us. If, if you've never experienced attack, listen, the, uh, the devil's got a lot of us right where he wants us, sitting on our spiritual couch. He's not going to contend with someone who uh, isn't advancing. But as soon as you do, you have to understand that that's coming against you. You have to know that. And don't think for a second that the devil doesn't understand the minutia of your life, those minute details, those sins that you've struggled with. Unless you're ready to stand up and advance the hill, you have to understand and you have to know that the devil's going to use those entry points into your life to come against you, to pull you down and to rob you from what God's called you to do. But if you understand and you know what you're up against, just like my daughter, knowing what it's like to take the pill, if we have the right mindset and we're prepared, man, we can hold fast to God and have faith with him through it. He promised us in 1 Corinthians 10 that we won't be tested beyond what we're able to bear, and he will make a way out for us. And 1 John 4, 4 tells us, greater is he who's within us than he who's within the world. And God has made a way for each one of us, but we have to know spiritual warfare is coming if we decide we're going to step out and begin being used for whatever God's called us to be used for. 
Let's, uh, let's read verses 9 through 11. So he comes up against this guy, Bar-Jesus. Now, Bar-Jesus and Elimaz, these are the two different names for the same guy. This isn't two different guys. So, verse 9 through 11. But Saul, who is also called Paul. Now, forevermore we will know this guy is the name Paul, the Apostle Paul. His name just changed. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Imagine this scene for a moment. You're the proconsul. Now, throughout your, your time as proconsul, you've had this, this guy that's a member of your entourage, if you will. He's a false prophet. So to you, he's speaking to you the oracles of God, says he knows the way to God. He, his message might be 90% truth, but that 10% error makes all the difference. But not only that but he's a magician, so we know that he's satanically empowered to do signs and wonders. And the proconsul has surely thought up until this point that this must be the great power of God. But what happens? Paul immediately comes in with the true power of God and demolishes what Satan has done. And we have to understand also, a missional-minded believer is supernaturally gifted for the mission in which they're sent. God has given us power over the enemy. He has. We can trust that with him. Now, in Hebrews 13, verse 20, it says that he will equip us with every good thing that we need in order to do his will. That is something we can go into the fight with, not ever having to worry about, that we have power over the enemy. But my question is, how does that play out today? Because we see 2,000 years ago that this entire region, the Greco-Roman world, is given over to sorcery, divination. They're given over to oracles. You've probably heard of the oracle at Delphi. All these different ideas of God and the power of Satan has moved through the region. Now God has decided to do something new. He brings the apostles in with the great power of God and makes a mockery of the power of Satan, completely trumps it. But today, that doesn't really happen. Today, you see, Satan has switched up his strategy. He knows that through signs and wonders, he can't deceive because the power of God will make a mockery of it. So what's he done today? How does that power play out today in our society? Well, we see the fruits of Satan everywhere we go. For instance, we see men and women in the workplace who are given over to power, who they think that the number one thing in life, the thing that's going to bring them fulfillment in life is power. So they'll lie, cheat, and steal in order to get to the greatest point of power within their company so that they can exert it over people. Or given over to the love of money and trying to keep up with the Joneses and think that life is about the accumulation of things. Or given over to lust or whatever. Addictions. But when God moves into those situations, you have to understand that the power of God is today the same as it was then. That he calls men and women to rise up instead of having power, having a spirit of humility on them. And when those people who have given their lives over to do anything for power, 
when they see, well, first of all, they get there and they realize it doesn't fulfill their heart, but then they see you come in with humility and joy and love. And again, it demolishes that stronghold all the same. The love of money is countered with contentment. Men that don't have to work all hours of the day, all the time, and be away from their families, but understand that true value and worth is above, and true value and worth is our families. You see, God is still countering the power of the devil today, and he's called you and he's called me into the workplace and into the culture in order to do battle with that. And just like with Bar-Jesus, he was given a false word of the Lord. Don't think for a second that the false doctrines of the world, those philosophies that I was just talking about, don't think that they haven't entered into the church, because they have. It's extremely important that we know the Word of God. It's extremely important that we know the truth. And, you know, here at, here at the creek, we, we don't try and point out all false doctrine that's happening out in the world. Our view of it is, if we consistently teach and preach just the truth of the Word, that you're going to be able to discern for yourselves what the errors are. It's, uh, Kevin taught about the FBI, like last year at some point. He was talking about how the FBI, when they train their team, they don't have them study counterfeit bills. They have them study the real thing. They don't even look at a counterfeit. They get to know the real thing so intimately that when a counterfeit is introduced, they're easily able to identify it. But these doctrines that have crept into the church, and they're very subtle and very deceitful. I'll mention, I'll give you an idea, an example of one, and it's called Believe and Receive. I don't know if you've heard that one before, but it's based off of Mark 11. Verse uh, 24, where Jesus says, And in prayer, all things asking for it, in faith you shall receive it. And I tell you what, that preaches good in the American culture. It's like our Jesus in the bottle. We can rub it and get our three wishes. Get anything we want. Preaches really well, but is that the truth of Scripture? Is that the final word that the Bible says over what Jesus said there? And it's not. We find in James that he says, You ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong intentions that you'll spend it on your pleasures. What Jesus is talking about in Mark 11, what he's talking about is a heart that's completely transformed, completely given over to the will of God, so much so that every single thing that's prayed for is prayed in accordance to God's will. It seems like John had to qualify the same statement that Jesus made in 1 John chapter 5, verse 15. He says this, he says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that all things that we ask for, we shall receive, comma, if we ask in accordance to his will. And that's the model prayer, isn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's not about us, it's not about what we want, it's not about what we can call out. It's about us being transformed and being completely the same image as Christ as we grow into that. It's very important that each one of us be a good Berean. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but it comes from Acts 17, verse 11. And the way we're going through Acts, we'll be there in like three years. But Acts 17, 11, Paul's talking about this. And he says, he's talking about two different groups of people, the Bereans and the Thessalonians. He says, you know, the ones in Berea, they were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they both received the word of God with all readiness of mind, but... Bereans, they searched the scriptures daily to find out the things that I taught them were true. If Paul can say that about himself, if Paul can say, check me out, 
make sure what I'm teaching you is the truth. You should be able to say that about me. You should be able to say that about Matt. You should be able to say that about anybody who seeks to sow into you spiritually. Make sure you know the truth. Make sure you're set free by the truth. So, we see Paul, we see Barnabas come into town. They're opposed by this false magician. They cause blindness to come on him. What happens? Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. Yeah, I bet he did. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. For us, let me ask a question. Is everybody that we tell the word of God to, or every time we go to do a mission that the Lord has sent us to, will it always result in someone believing? It won't. The Bible's very clear that some reap, some sow, but it's God who gives increase. You see, if we live our lives when we're going out on these missions with the mindset that people are always going to believe, we're going to be stuck between two extremes. One, very depressed, thinking we did something wrong when people aren't saved, and elation and joy and on a spiritual high when people come to the Lord. And God has called us to be a balanced people. We don't track success in the Christian church by how many spiritual skins we have on the wall. We don't track it by numbers. We track success in the Christian church by our our obedience to the will of God when He calls us to do those things He calls us to do. When we step out in faith and go and we leave the results to Him. Now, I want to close today with a verse from the Apostle Paul. Now, We've walked with Paul as he was a persecutor of the church to now being a believer, to now being sent out on his first missionary journey. And in the book of 1 Timothy, he's tutoring this young pastor. And he talks to him about this, this life that he's had. And I think it's important for us to bring that up today, and I want to read it to you, exactly what he says to Timothy. He says it like this. He says, I thank Jesus Christ who has given me strength Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service or his mission. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves your full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the worst sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him, that's you and I, for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So what Paul is saying here is, listen, My past life before I came to Christ was absolutely corrupt. But God had mercy on me. And why did he have mercy on me? For all the ones in the future that would ever believe on me, that none of them could ever look back at their past and say, God can't use me because of this. Or God can't use me because I did that. Now you see, our sins are wiped as far as the east is from the west and shall never come again into condemnation. We can trust that God has done that. We can step up and not worry about our past. We can step up and trust God that he can use us despite it. 
And this is how he ends what he says to Timothy. And I'm going to paraphrase it to use it for us today. He says, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, or for me, this charge I entrust to you, church, to myself, in accordance with the prophecies or the word previously made about you, this word that was given today, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Guys, don't look back on whatever past you might have. When you, if some of you are doing the Bible through 90 days, you're seeing all the characters God used through the Old Testament. It's a motley crew. And there's not a whole lot of good guys back there. But he's called each one of us. He's created each one of us for his purpose, and it's for this, to wage the good warfare. We are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual fight. What do we hold through that battle? What did he say? Holding faith and a good conscience. Remember, Ephesians 6, it tells us what our shield is. What's our shield? It's the shield of faith. Trust God that he is with you in the battle, and no matter how tall those walls are, like Jericho, they will come down. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a beautiful weekend. Thank you so much for the independence that we have in this country. Lord, that you raised men and women up to start a country that was devoted to you with hearts of humility. And Father, thank you for the democracy that we have in this country. And Lord, I pray that this message would ring true in the hearts of all of us. And Father, that each one of us would hold on to each one of these steps so that we might have a missional mindset, that each one of us, that it would drive us into greater fellowship with you, and that, Father, through that, you might tell us what you've called us to in life each and every day. I pray for diligence for each of us, that we step out, and we don't have fear of the attack that's coming, but we stand boldly for you, God, knowing that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And, Father, to take a side note, like I did with the first service, I want to pray for a moment for the tragedy that's happened in Saginaw over this last week. Lord, our hearts are wounded. We're hurt. It's, I'm sickened by what happened. I don't understand what happened. We don't even know who did it, Father, but I pray this. I pray that justice would be served, God. I pray that whoever did this incredibly horrible crime, Father, that you would bring them to justice. I pray somehow, some way for peace, For all those that were affected, for the kids who found this poor girl, I pray that you wipe it from their minds, God. I pray that it would be a distant memory. I pray that through this, the kids that live on that block, they may find the eternity that's in their heart and it might lead them to you. Lord, we pray for good to come of this tragedy. And we know this, God, that when that little girl closed her eyes in death, that her spiritual eyes opened there was a father waiting for her who loved her dearly and she forever knew that love and she's with you now rejoicing in the love that you have father thank you that you are eternal thank you that you love us with an eternal love if we could ask a request this morning it would be this god to give that little girl a hug from each of us and tell her we'll see her soon Thank you for all you've done, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Marine Creek Church is located in Fort Worth, Texas. If you have any questions, feel free to visit our website at www.marinecreekchurch.com. Thank you.